0: I invite you again to turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we have preached through verse 14. And we are on verse 15. The Bible says in Romans 12, 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This morning, uh, we are going to have a short message. Because uh, if we were to do 16 and following, we'd be be here a long time. Does that make sense? And so, we're going to be dealing with very specifically, what this means, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those that weep. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Like last week, we understood that verse 14 and following seem to be talking to how that a Christian deals with unsaved or or the world or people outside the church. Um, Not everybody agrees with that, but... The more and more I'm reading, the more and more I'm convinced that that is truly the issue. Because in this text, we as believers have, are being transformed from the inside out. Amen? And as we're being transformed, those within the, our brothers and sisters, we need to encourage one another. We want to and we love to and encourage one another in the faith by using the gifts that God has given to us. But that doesn't mean we come, become just a, a, a mountain in Tibet where Northland meets. I want you to understand that. We don't seclude ourselves and, and, and leave the world and go off on our... That's not what God intends for us to be doing. We are salt and light of this earth. Amen. Therefore, the idea is we will have interactions with the world... And that's a God, sovereign God plan thing. And in those interactions, how do we act with them? How do we work with them? There's not a person in here who hasn't worked with an unsaved person. There's probably not a person in here that has not played or, or in, had a, a good time with an unsaved person. We are always going to be rubbing shoulders with unsaved until the Millennial Kingdom. But they're always going to be here. And if we're going to be salt and light, we have to be different than the world, not only within the local church, but also outside the local church. How will unsaved people know the Lord without you modeling Christ? Amen? And so, as we talked about last week, we, we, we um, praise them or bless them that persecute us. Now, immediately following the service, we had multiple exception rules to that. How many understand that? Number one, are we told to protect our family? Yes or no? Yes. Uh, we're not to appease them at that moment. And I think it's very interesting that we use the examples Jesus and Paul and Stephen, and all of them were alone. And the issue was, it was their work with God that made them being persecuted. How many understand that? So there are some, if you will, exception clauses, but it's not because of your pride or your Americanism. It's because there are other passages of Scripture that we are to protect our family. That's one of them. The other is what would be called the just war theory. How many know what a just war theory is? Is it right for Christians to fight in wars? Well, there are multiple movies and multiple examples of people that were abstainers but yet went in without rifles or something, right? We know those types of people. That's that's between them and God, amen? And God used them mightily, by the way. But does it say we are not to be in war? That is a a Mennonite, uh, Amish type mentality. And I think there is... Well, here's the deal. If Christ, if the Bible says never go to war... What are we doing with all of the Old Testament? So, although there are principles involved, and I understand them and respect some of them, I don't respect, though, I, I think they're vividly, absolutely wrong to not serve, as in, we'll never go to war. God just hates war. Well, that's, that's simply not true. Yes, he hates war, but he actually told them to go to war. Amen? So there's a big disconnect there. But how many understand what I'm talking about with these exceptions within this? Uh, please, I'm not abdicating the radicalness of either of those as I just explained. Now, we talked about the root of this radical Christ-like love is death to self and invincible delight in the person, the performance, and the promises of Christ. We are to be defined as in Christ, amen, in Christ, that's who we are, Piper says it this way, if you struggle with feelings of bitterness and revenge, go deeper with Christ until you know him, you love him, and the way he really is, I will tell you this, all bitterness, all struggles, if the one thing that must be done is to know him better, it's, sim- it's, sim- it's that simple, now will that fix everything, well there's always going to be baggage, But we must know Him better. We must. Verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Romans 12, 15. Now, if you go to many commentators, there would be like a small little paragraph. (laughs) Verse 15, here it is, right there. Very small. Very little. There's hardly anything there. But there is things here. There are many things here. Schreiner, one of the um, Southern Baptist commentators, says that verse 15 appears to return to relations in the community. In other words, this is specifically written to the church. He bases that theory that Scripture demands that Christians are to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. It indicates a love within the Christian church. That is true. We weep with those that weep within our church. Amen? Amen. We rejoice with those that rejoice within our church. Amen? But we do the same thing for those without the church. For how are they going to know the love of God unless that is what we're doing? Amen? So that is a theory, and I think by the end of this, hopefully we'll understand that maybe it's just a theory. So where does this rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep? It's very interesting. If you were looking to historical literature, what is historical literature? Okay, stuff about scripture, right? Or or Josephus, which was written during the time of scripture, or Philo, or any kind of historian, or apocryphal books. What are apocryphal books? Anybody who know what apocryphal books are? All right, it's extra biblical. They are not part of the canon. The Catholic Church did not decide that. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever. No, stop that. There are apocryphal books, but the reality is they're there. Wisdom literature from the Jewish uh, Talmud and those types of things. Those are also historical books. This, This idea of weeping with those that weep, I just want to focus on that for a second, comes boldly out in historical literature. The rejoice with those that rejoice, not so much. It's kind of like a biblical thing only it's kind of weird, as you now, I have not studied all of the historical books, okay, so I could be wrong when I'm saying this, but in in one sense, it seems as though let me ask you, the biggest, most brutal guy in the world, if he's walking by a Madam in distress or a baby that is crying, what is their natural instinct? Help them. It is a natural thing, is it not? We want to help people that are crying. We feel bad for them. But here's the other issue then. So let's think through that. And then now let's talk about the rejoice with those that rejoice. Do we really? Do we have that same natural instinct to rejoice with people that are rejoicing? Well, at a baseball game, you might think so. If it's your team that hit the ball out of the park. But what if it's the other team? Are you rejoicing then? Let me ask you this. There are weddings... There are family reunions. There are graduation parties. There's all these things that are honoring certain individuals. Men, I want to talk to you specifically. Let me ask you, don't you just love going to those things? I can guarantee you, I can't guarantee you, but I bet (laughs) most of you have said, I think I got a doctor's appointment to pull my teeth. So we're really not rejoicing with those that rejoice. You see, rejoicing with those that rejoice takes true, biblical, Christ-like humility. And frankly, we're a little weak on that. So that's where we're headed how many follow this now this isn't just a simple yeah we're happy when everybody else happy we'll weep when everybody else is weep okay we're done let's go no 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 there's much more to this i'm going to read to you some of the historical where we think they may have come from or vice versa how many understand that <clears throat> when people come up and say see In the historical book, it says, I'll just use this for instance, it doesn't weep with those that weep, so Paul must have used that to put it in the Bible. Well, maybe it's the other way around. How do you know? They don't. And and it's a common misfortunate thing. Anyways, the Bible says, or not the Bible, I'm sorry. Homer says, in I don't even know how to pronounce the word. Let's skip that one. How's that? Jewish wisdom literature, Sirach. Have you ever heard of Sirach? It's S-I-R-A. Is how it's usually, or S-I-R. It's how it's usually abbreviated. It says, Do not avoid those who weep, but mourn with those who mourn. Do not hesitate to visit the sick, because for such deeds you will be loved. Now, in that text, that historical context, It's clear we should mourn with those that mourn, right? For what reason? So I can be loved. They missed the point, didn't they? Zebulun, another historical book. And if a man were a stranger or sick or aged, I boiled the fish and dressed them well and offered them to all men as every man had need, grieving with and having compassion on them. Again, you can find the same principle here. Mourn with those that mourn. Then we have to go to Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. For if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Biblical principle, how does that work? What does that suffering look like? What does that mourning look like? What does that rejoicing look like? And we'll get into that this morning. Another passage is Philippians 2, verse 17 and 18. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifices and services of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now, this is a man that has been beaten, that has been stoned, that has been shipwrecked, that has been whipped, that has been thrown in jail, and the list goes on and on. And he's saying, I'd rejoice in that. That rejoicing certainly is not self motivated. Because we hate it when it rains too much and complain. Do we not? As if we deserve perfect weather all the time. What even is the term perfect? Let's just be honest. Perfect weather is whatever God sovereignly plans is perfect. Amen? We just don't like it. So, what is very interesting, that non-biblical history literature truly brings out the humanity should weep, and console each other, and help those in needs, it seems like a natural thing. Like, why in the world is Hallmark so popular? You probably all watch a Hallmark movie, and tears will probably be shed. Will they not? So, by the way, ladies, when men hear Hallmark, they think crying, they think, I don't want anything to do with it, I'm going this way. When you see someone crying, we are sympathetic to them. We don't even know them. It certainly seems to be human nature to weep with those that weep. There's something about that. Does that make sense? There's something that naturally happens. What is more interesting, and by the way, that that thing that may naturally be happening might be, I'm not advocating this as a doctrinal dogma, But we have all been made in the image of God, and God is a compassionate God. And therefore, what is more interesting is that there is much less, if anywhere, in historical writings to rejoice with those that rejoice. There may be human writings somewhere that encourages this, but naturally, there is tepidness in rejoicing aspect. But scripture is different. There are imperatives to rejoice with others. It needs to be an imperative because why? It doesn't come naturally. It's a supernatural thing to be selfless enough to rejoice in someone that has totally destroyed you to, be got, to get to be where they're going to be and honored for. Is that not true? Let me ask you this. What would have happened if Cain rejoiced with Abel for his relationship with God? Why is it we are dragged to weddings and parties, dragged to weddings and parties, honoring someone else? Humanity is bent to jealousy, not rejoicing in others. For that takes humility, which is not depravity born. Does that make sense? Rejoicing is harder than weeping for sure. Chrysostom, anybody know who Chrysostom is? He is considered an early church father. now, I wish they wouldn't have called them fathers because there's only one father. Amen. and by the way a uh, would it be a would it be right if I said post catholic believer meaning they were a Catholic and they, that's offensive to them. Because they use the term father as the Pope. As if that is God's man. Absolutely. So, Chrysostrum, and I'm going to bring another one up, <clears throat> uh, Origin here soon. These guys were early church pastors. All right. And by the way, we praise the Lord for these men. Because it's because of these men, we actually have copies of the original texts that we enjoy to read. Amen. If the early church pastors, you could fill this room up with the literature that they have. It's unbelievable. Not all correct, by the way. (laughs) Pretty hard when you are scrambling to find Isaiah and you've got to go bring your horse and buggy to bring the book at least to somewhere you could read it. Do you understand what that means? I mean, think about that. You literally had to trail donkey and cart to bring a book of the Bible. It's that difficult then. Regardless, we are all inclined to shed a sympathetic tear with those who are suffering. But envy and a sense of competition often hinder us from truly rejoicing with those who rejoice. That's the truth of the matter. But it should be different with Christians. Amen? So, right away, we should understand that what does it mean, then, to rejoice? Well, if you were to take one definition of the term rejoice, which is probably not the best and most accurate way through all Scripture. But one of the definitions of the term rejoice means to to give joy to. What does that have the idea of? One person put it this way. He asks the question, Does your presence in the room bring joy to others? Would that be a fair question on this definition of rejoice? Yes or no? It would. There's those people that walk into the room and like the whole room brightens up. Right? There's that person in the room who never says a bad word about anybody and is constantly sharing the love of Christ. They have joy in their Christian life. I will tell you this, that never, ever happens to a legalistic Christian. Does not Because you're never good enough. You can never do good enough stuff. And so it's a constant battle of fighting all the time. Why do you think they call them fighting fundamentalists? one of my dear friends and mentors, I asked him point blank while I was at Shepherds, I said, Doctor, I'm not going to say who he was, what is the difference between fundamentalism and where you're at now? Which is a pretty probing question, by the way. He was like, well, we don't focus on the knots, but on on him, basically, on Christ, let me ask you this: if we were to focus on Christ in everything, where do the knots go? Does that make sense to you, or are you following this? When I say knots, I don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. If we are focused on Christ, those don'ts go away because they just are natural or supernatural things that happen in our lives. As we draw closer to Christ, the pornography goes out the door. Not because I have to, because I don't want anything to do with it. Amen? And you can go through a list of things like that. I want to be drunk with the Holy Spirit, not with wine. I want to be controlled by Him, not by some berry. Are you kidding me? So this idea, I think, is very, very helpful. Matter of fact, the way it's written here, it's, it's, the idea is rejoice continually. That's the idea. It's present tense. I think it's what is called an infinitive in the Greek grammar. When it's constantly going. This is a, a, a constant thing. It, 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 this is what defines you, if you will. This is only possible, only possible when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's the only way it can happen. And it doesn't always happen to those that are indwelt because there's too much focus on themselves and not on the Lord. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to none another. And, and okay, what does that mean? Be filled with the Spirit. Well, here's what happens, here's the result of speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. Can you imagine any time, at any place, where you're singing and making melody to the Lord and you're angry? Obedience is the very best way to say, you believe, but listen to me. Right? Are you kidding me? There's nothing wrong with the song, just the way I sang it, okay? If you would even call that singing, it's certainly not making melody. It's interesting he uses the term melody, isn't it? What does that mean? Different parts together in the song. Amen? Oh, that's cool. Sounds like different giftedness Within a church, rejoice means to—and this is very cool—to be cheerful or or cheerful. It's very interesting that Greek word. If you have a lexicon or or something there that gives you the Greek word, in your, ch- cheerio, cherio. cheerio, cheerio. <laughs> not as in cheerio. How many know the term cheerio? It's a greeting, isn't it? Guess what the term rejoice was understood as in biblical times. It was a greeting, like hail, or maybe a hello, hello, totally different. It's, it's, it implies and imparts joy. Chero, and by the way, Chero is the same word, the same basic word, Cher, C-H-A-R, is, is what? Charity. As in grace. All those are mingled in here. It's just phenomenal how these words work well together. To be in a state of happiness and well-being, although we have to understand happiness is usually an external motivated thing. I'm only happy if, whereas rejoicing is an internal expression of Christ's work in our lives. It might come out, and probably does come out as happiness, but happiness should not be understood as joy and as they're the same. They're not. Happiness is an outcome of true joy. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the foundational issue here. If we go to several Greek lexicons like Zodiades and uh, um, BDAG, and, and those. It has the idea of association, the origin of charity which charis or grace follows. It has the idea of favorably disposed, leaning towards, delighting in God's grace, experiencing God's grace, conscious or glad for God's grace. In contrast, happiness is external and temporal. Temporal. Therefore, we have to understand that the word cherish is related to cherio, to rejoice, and cherah, joy, delight, the rejoice of the activity of God's grace in man. In other words, it's an internal reality. How many of you are happy all the time? You know, that song was so theologically wrong. Right? I'm in right, out right, up right, down right. Well, that could be right because we're all over. Happy all the time. Liar. Liar. Not true. By the way, if I had my, all my ministry back again that God has graciously given me, there are many songs I would not be singing. Because songs impart theology. And that theology better be right. <clears throat> Chariot was also, as we said before, used as greetings. Welcome, good day, hail to you. Many times it was translated as hail. That's one of the big things. Not as what we had for the last few weeks. <laughs> but hail, hello, that type of thing. So... If that's what it means, it's not it's not a feeling, it's a choice. Does that make sense? It's a choice, and that's the issue. I will tell you this, and we're I'm getting done on this, but we're we've got our ways to go here. Nothing, 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 nothing expresses love so firmly as sharing both joy and pain with others. doesn't. It's as if someone cares, really? How many understand that? They're happy for me, really? It's not, I wonder why they're happy. So here's what happens. If we are not usually a joyous person, Immediately will come some, I wonder why they're so joyous. I wonder what they're getting out of this. Something's a little fishy here. That should never be said about a Christian. Amen? Nothing expresses love so firmly as sharing both joy and pain with others. This is what the Apostle Paul is trying to express. Let's just, how hard is it to rejoice? So if that's the term rejoice, and that's what it means, and it certainly would share love for others and that we care, and we do, let's get practical with this aspect of the sermon. Men, do you just rejoice when you learn you're going to attend a wedding? Isn't it exciting? Men, I'm not talking about ladies because I can't get in your mind. Can't do that. In my opinion and i could be way off there are a plethora of of reasons why ladies enjoy weddings some of them would be the pomp and circumstance the flowers how am i going to do my wedding how am i all that stuff which focuses on self let me ask you are you going to rejoice with the lady that is marrying who you wanted to marry Okay, so that's weird maybe, huh? Okay. (sighs) Do you rejoice going to... Well, or do you rejoice... So, men, do you you, you rejoice when you learn you are going to attend a wedding? Some of you say, yeah, it's just something I have to do. Well, that's different than rejoicing in it, amen? Let me ask you this. Do you rejoice going to the wedding which is scheduled for opening day of deer season? see this issue if it doesn't affect me well then I'll be rejoicing but as soon as it affects me well we'll just hold back on that in all honesty when it's easy convenient self motivated it's easy to rejoice but when that party wedding or other event infringes on something we love more These may be the comments that follow. Do we really have to go? I'm not feeling so hot. I think I need to work that day. To rejoice with those that are rejoicing is saying that we leave our self-motivated flesh at the door and truly selflessly minded rejoice with the rejoicer. Amen? That's what it means. It's as though we go to a wedding and we're like, yeah, great, I got that checked up, I did my good deed, and now I'm going home because I need it. You were rejoicing with them? Can people sense that? That you're there for the wrong reasons? Absolutely. If the rejoicing is motivated in selflessness that is in the type of rejoicing that is Holy Spirit motivated. That's true rejoicing. I remember very vividly my senior year. I'm a senior. I had just, for the last two years, been voted MVP of the state and soccer. And here they are. Rewards banquet, specifically, usually, for seniors. And they get up and they say, Now, for the most valuable player in soccer, every single one of those guys are looking at me. And they give it to a ninth grade kid. I will tell you this I was not rejoicing. And I was dead wrong. Dead wrong. Matter of fact, after the ceremony, he comes up to me and said, Tim, I don't know what in the world happened. I don't know what's going on. This isn't mine, this is yours. That man was more, had had focused more on God and godliness than I did. What about that person at work who gets a bonus and you don't? What about that person that gets a promotion that you wanted to get? Your brother is given a priceless gift and you are not. The the list is endless, is it not? Is our rejoicing godly or is it self-motivated? Those are all perfect tests to see where our rejoicing comes from. Do we truly and selflessly rejoice with those that are rejoicing? That is a supernatural thing. That's why I think there's very little, if any, in historical data, because it's not a normal thing. Rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep, to feel pleasure with this person who is in esteem, or weep weeping in total distress, there is nothing that ties love so, so firmly as sharing both joy and pain with others. The question is, do we truly rejoice? One author, and I agree with him 100% on this, he said, Paul is thinking just as much or perhaps more particularly of Christian relations with those who are outside the church. Listen, they aren't Satan outside the church. They're not. And if we understand who God is and what he graciously did to us, we would want to love them even more so they would see Jesus Christ also. There is indeed a special point here in such an exhortation with regard to those outside. For truly to bless one's persecutors must surely involve readiness to take one's stand beside them as human beings. As we do with, if you will, abortion. Amen. And we should. Origen understands this verse a little differently. He's a little, I think he's off on this, but I, I get where he's coming from, and it's a good principle. He sees this text as saying, both, he sees that men, both non-Christians and Christians, very often rejoice at things which they ought not to be rejoicing in. In other words, there's a time and a place when we should be meet, weeping or rejoicing. Just because the guy lost his job and you got it, you don't, don't rejoice in their uh, hurt, amen? And don't weep in their rejoicing. How many understand that? Someone... Uh, we're happy that somebody else got hurt. Or we're rejoicing that someone else got hurt. Is that Christian? That's exactly opposite of what he's trying to say. Now, although we believe we as believers do rejoice and mourn for the wrong reasons sometimes, and we never should, I'm not convinced that this is what Paul's intent of writing this verse is for. The principle's still true, right? But I don't think it's this in in context. One person said it this way A Christian is to take his stand beside his fellow man, whoever he may be, to have time and room for him in those experiences in which he is most truly himself, in his real human joy and in his real human sorrow, and to strive to be both with him and for him altogether and without reserve. Yet without compromising with his evil or sharing or even pretending to share the presuppositions of his age, which is passing away. Even as God himself is in Christ, both with us. Listen, Christ is with us in our rejoicing and in our weeping. Amen? We need to be with others in the rejoicing and in their weeping. Amen? Well, you don't understand. They didn't do it the way I think they should have done. I don't care. We don't celebrate the sin. We rejoice in what's happening. Amen. All of us have made major mistakes. If you don't think you have, then you're in the wrong church. And you are not going to appreciate much of what we preach. We are all sinners saved by grace. Amen. Okay, do we got the rejoicing thing? It's not as easy, just, yeah, I'll be happy for them. That's not what it's saying. It's selflessly rejoicing with them, no matter how it affects ourself. Amen. That's the issue. Now, weep with those that weep. Well, Colossians 2, or Colossians 3, verse 12. Very clear on this. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. All of that's talking about weeping with those that weep, is it not? It is clear, principally, we are commanded to have compassion, commanded to have kindness, commanded to have humility and gentleness and patience. What does it look like to have a heart of compassion? Well, Jesus showed his compassion, did he not? In what chapter of the Bible did he most show his compassion? Alive, show his compassion. Well, he showed his compassion when coming to the tomb of Lazarus, did he not? Jesus wept. What's that, John eleven thirty five, 35, I believe? Jesus wept with Mary and Martha. He could have come up there and said, hey, don't worry about this, I got this. He didn't do that. Did he? He literally wept. Not, not only did Jesus exemplify weeping with those that weep, but let me tell you something else. In the book of Psalm, chapter 56, now, did David write all the Psalms? No, he did not. Do we know if he wrote this one or not? We do. Because in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews puts David as the author of... Psalm chapter 56, because there's a, matter of fact, do you want to go there to see that? This is cool. Let's go there. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. So this is the writer of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, but I could be wrong. He again fixes certain days today, saying, through who? Through David. After so long a time, just as he had been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. What is that quote coming from? Psalm chapter 56. Who is the writer of Hebrews attributing that psalm to? Who? David. Therefore, here's what David says in Psalm chapter 56 and verse 8. And he says many things and we could go there and look at it, but we're just going to look at the issues where I'm talking about here. In 56, David implores the Lord, put my tears in thy bottle. Does God care about the weeping of His children? Yes or no? Yeah. You could say, and I think it would be very fair to say this, put the tears in thy bottle. Whose bottle is He talking about? God's. In other words, God treasures the tears of His children. Would that be a fair assumption based on that text? Absolutely. He treasures them. Now, y'all got that bottle that your mom has? Oh, right. She doesn't treasure them that much. She might treasure them in her heart, which I believe they do. God keeps them in his bottle. The writer of this text was abundantly clear trying to express to us, God deeply treasures your mourning. Does a sovereign God care for us? What's the answer? Absolutely. MacArthur gives a fantastic Illustration in his commentary on Romans chapter 12, verses 15 and following. And I'm going to use that illustration today because it's a historical issue which is phenomenal. It's a lovely illustration of the attitude that is seen in a custom practice in ancient Jerusalem. When the great temple built by Herod's stood on the Temple Mount. It had only one entrance located at the base of the southern wall. The remains of which you can still see today and if you are following Peter, which you should be following Peter, you would see day after day different places where he was as he's in Jerusalem and Israel. I don't know, if they back yet? Okay, how many, were get, how many saw some of the things he was at? I mean, they were wonderful things. Uh, regardless you could go to that today this southern wall the remains of which still recognizable today farther east on the same wall was the exit the people would enter through the opening that allowed them to go through the wall ascend the stairs to the temple area and then exit by the other passage huge crowds Hundreds of thousands of people would do this during Passover, for sure. But huge crowds followed, flowed in and out in steady streams. But there is one exception to that steady stream of things. As they bumped into and squeezed by each other, Some of them, many of them, came face to face with the groups because one group of worshipers was to go the opposite way by design. You can't have everybody going the opposite way, right? But it was a practice that one group of worshipers was always supposed to be going the opposite way. Why? Why? as they bumped into each other, as they squeezed by that narrow gate. They would squeeze by each other as the worshipers came out mourning and weeping over their sin. Those that were coming in would mourn with those that mourn. Look what's coming. The sad faces of those who were experiencing sorrow could be seen by those going the opposite direction and in those brief moments, the grief could be shared. What a fantastic illustration of weeping with those that weep. One author put it this way and this is how I'm going to close. I think it's a very fitting, you might want to call it a proverb, you might call it a, a, a simple saying, but it's so very true. A sorrow shared is but half of trouble. What does that mean? A sorrow shared is but half a trouble. Anybody? You have pain, but it's sharing in the pain. I remember very clearly leaving Montana and coming and spending time with with Bob and Amy. And that morning turned into laughter. Do you remember that? Why? God's got this. We have no idea what's going to happen, but God has this. A sorrow shared is but half a trouble. We need each other. A joy that is shared is a joy made double. In this case that I'm talking about specifically with Bob and Amy, it was quadrupled. Because I'll never forget the joy that we got to share together because of, and only because of, Our sovereign God has all things in His hand. And we can rejoice even in the worst case scenario. What a joy that is, amen? So next time we go through texts and shame on the commentators that have this much, shame on them. This is big stuff. This isn't just trivial proverbs that we can just think about for half a second and go on with life. This is living right here. This is Christian living for natural man cannot rejoice with those that rejoice without selfish ambitions that only comes through true Christianity, the Holy Spirit, amen. So why is it in the section of Christians dealing with the outside world, how greater can they see Christ than you truly and honestly are rejoicing in their rejoicing, amen? And not some backward motivated selfish reason why you can be happy with them. For instance, there is a reason why men love to come to the wedding. In the world's weddings. I get to eat and drink and there you go. It's a powerful passage. I will tell you this. We don't have an idea how powerful it really is because they're just words on a page many times that we just skim over. Let's stop skimming and start living. Deal? Rejoice with those that rejoice. Weep with those that weep. For in that, Christ is seen in our lives. Because He certainly rejoiced and wept. His sacrifice on the cross was the greatest selfless action ever made. And the greatest rejoicing that we can have. You could get in even deeper and answer the question then, why do we call it Good Friday? Well, there you have it. Scott, I didn't ask you before, but could you close in order of prayer, please? Sure. Please stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for a good message, Lord, a a humbling message. Um, I know I'm just as guilty as anybody of probably not rejoicing with others or even helping in their sorrows, Lord. And that is something we need to do individually and as a church, Lord, and we're at work throughout our day. Lord, I just ask that this message would rest upon our hearts and our minds, Lord, as we go out this week. And let it speak true to us. Again, we just thank you for your mercies and your love, all you do for us each and every day. Just be with us all this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.